This week's episode of the Ocean Pancake Podcast features Dr. Rachel Miller, who just got her PhD a couple weeks ago. We talk about her journey coming from landlocked Chicago and how she fell in love with sharks from the aquarium to turtles in the Bahamas, where turtles go during their lost years or just after them. We talk a little bit about work she's doing on the east coast of Australia, how she's trying to collaborate uh, with different stakeholders about the management techniques and what management and protection is actually happening to help save our marine creatures. So if you are curious about what's happening on the east coast of Australia, Stick around, this is a great episode for you. As always, please, please, please hit the like, subscribe, all those buttons, and um, yeah, leave this podcast uh, review. It would mean the world to me. We're still a new podcast, so it would be fantastic to hear your guys' feedback. Of course, also tag me on Ocean Pancake on Instagram uh, if you're listening to it, and join the Facebook group um, so we can have chats about the things you've learned or anything else you'd like to hear about. So if there's anyone you'd like me to interview, again, send them through to me. You can also email me at oceanpancakepodcast at gmail.com. Basically, get in touch. I love hearing from you guys. And yeah, let's do it. Every day, there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean, whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution, If the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Ocean Pancake Podcast. Today, I'm here with Dr. Rachel Miller. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. It's my first ever podcast as well. Oh, well, that's great. This is, I think, going to be episode 21 or something like that. So it's, we're getting up there in the numbers. Cool. (laughs) Um, So I have invited you on here to give me a bit more and everyone listening uh, of you know, a background on what's actually happening in Australia in terms of the management of marine life and um, the sustainability aspect of that. Um, so could you just start off with telling us a little bit about your story and what made you fall in love with the ocean and get you working in the space? Yep. Um, so I actually grew up in the States. I've been in Australia for nearly four years, but I grew up in the States. Um, I was born just outside of Chicago. And that's actually where I fell in love with the ocean, which if anybody's familiar who's listening with Chicago, it's a bit of a landlocked state. So it seems a little bit um, of a weird thing to say, to say that that's where I fell in love with the ocean. But I remember my first ever trip to the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. And um, when I, I was there, I was about five years old. And I remember that there was a shark in one of the tanks. And I guess I made eye contact with it or something, but somehow we had this little bond where it was following me around the tank. And instead of being scared, I was 
like thrilled. I was so excited about it. And from then on, I was like all about sharks. I said, sharks, this shark. That. My little sister who was with me was terrified. She didn't want to be with the sharks, but I said, no, I need to know more about this. And so that then led me to um, going to study marine biology for my bachelor's degree at Coastal Carolina University. And I still then was thinking, oh, all about sharks, I'm in love with sharks. Yep, this is what I'm going to do, be a shark biologist for the rest of my life. And then my final year, I took a job as a naturalist at Myrtle Beach State Park. And I held my first ever sea turtle. And that changed the course <laughs> of my career from there. So um, from there on, I went um, to Florida and I did a master's in environmental education. And then I moved to the Bahamas for a year and a half and worked as a research assistant uh, for a sea turtle conservation program there. Uh, before I came to Australia and started my PhD. Wow, quite the story. So you've really covered a whole myriad of oceans and creatures in, in, in your journey. Uh, what was yeah, and I, I really thought that I was going to be a shark biologist and then I met a sea turtle and that changed everything. I still love sharks, but sea turtles now and sharks are sort of vying for that number one position in, in my heart. <laughs> I, I do love the sea turtles. Where in the Bahamas were you doing that? Um, I was working at the Cape Eleuthera Institute um, in Eleuthera in the Bahamas. So it's um, considered to be, or what's called a family island. So it's a, um, one of the outer islands and it's a bit smaller than some of the other uh, cruise ship destinations. But it was really cool. We had a, it has a, um, a boarding school attached to it called the Island School. Mm -hmm. And um, students typically from the US come there and study for a semester. It's a really amazing program. And then they also have a primary school um, in the village of Deep Creek, which is where sort of all of us lived, um, that is associated with the research institute as well. And so they do some outreach in the community. And a, I have, I've obviously, so I've been in Australia for four years, which means I've been away for four years, but just watching everything unfold online, it looks like it's really expanding and they're doing a lot of really cool things in the community. Um, so it's a really awesome place. That sounds so great. And what species of turtle um, did you get to work with there? <clears throat> so um, it was primarily green sea turtles there, um, juvenile green. So um, they were um, basically turtles that had just come back from their oceanic phase and were now recruiting to their feeding grounds. So they ranged from being super teeny tiny to like the size of a um, dinner plate to bigger maybe I think I learned the largest one that we caught when I was there I think was 32 kilos <clears throat> which is very small because sea turtles can get up to hundreds of kilos um, when they are adults so these ones were pretty pretty small that's amazing because I, I thought it was quite a big mystery in terms of what happens to the turtles um, during their oceanic phase and I've never really seen small ones so when I was in mm. Africa and Comoros <clears throat> Um, we had a lot of nesting turtles. It's one of the biggest nesting sites in the world there. Uh, and then we, of course, had the hatchlings emerge. So I saw yep. the big mamas and then the little tiny babies. Yeah. Um, and then uh, essentially for anyone who doesn't know, the turtles, once they hatch, they run towards um, the ocean. Is it called running? I don't know. They paddle, they <laughs> flap down towards the ocean. Uh, and then they basically swim nonstop for around 10 days. Is, is that right? Uh, to yeah. get away from the, from the shores and anything like that and into the deep blue. And then we kind of lose track of them. Is that, is that true? Yeah. Yeah. And um, then, so we were getting them, we think um, after they had their sort of their lost years, 
um, than when they were coming back to recruiting to their foraging grounds. So these turtles, even though they're quite small, could have been anywhere between five to 15 years old, um, depending on how big they were when we caught them. Um, but yeah, I think there is, there, there's more and more research now sort of uncovering some of these, these mysteries of where they go, but I, I think there still is a lot of um, information that's still unknown about what they're doing during those, those years once they, once they disappear. <clears throat> that's so cool. Yeah, because I think the smallest turtles I've seen, especially diving like the Great Barrier Reef and stuff, has mm. still been quite significant. I don't know what, yeah. what size I would say that is. I don't know, like A, A3? maybe bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, how do you measure turtle size? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it's hard to estimate unless you're actually out there with your yeah, caliper yeah. Measuring, the, measuring the length of the carapace, but um, yeah, the ones that I've seen on the GBR as well um, are much bigger still than the ones that I was um, working with in the Bahamas. And, but we, um, I also, while I've been here, even though it hasn't been part of my research, I've been helping out with aerial surveys of the Great Barrier Reef. Mm -hmm. And um, you can actually see, we fly at 500 feet in this tiny little airplane. And you can actually see um, sea turtles from the airplane there. Wow. And sometimes fly over um, these really shallow reef patches and you just see um, hundreds of these what look very small to us turtles but are probably about that dinner plate size maybe a little bit bigger um, if you were actually there on top of them but um, they do get they can be quite small even in that um, in That's that area amazing. yeah maybe they just stay out of the more like populated areas and they're more towards the outer reef um, I, I think it's incredible like in those flights because I did that flight in Ningaloo uh, Ningaloo, oh, cool. I got mm -hmm. to go on one of the tiny little Cessna planes and just the, the marine species you can see from the air. It was crazy. You know, yeah. we spotted manta rays and tiger sharks and yeah. whale sharks. And it was just, wow. Even turtles. Yeah. Which is cool to, to see. Wow. Anyway, that was a little bit of a tangent, but <laughs> I always love a good turtle chat. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> so could you tell us a bit more about the work you're doing now? Yeah, so um, I've just finished um, my PhD and I focused on stakeholder engagement. So primarily, so I focused on government groups and government agencies, but also I was really interested in getting non-government stakeholder groups involved. So like industry bodies, research agencies, traditional owner groups, um, community groups, trying to identify where those different groups that are not necessarily working in the day-to-day -day, um, policy management management of marine migratory species, how we can get them better involved um, in the policy and management of marine migratory species on the east coast of Australia. So I spent a lot of time um, reviewing policy and management plans from the east coast of Australia. And I also spent a lot of time interviewing um, different groups of people as well to sort of understand where different groups view themselves as fitting into the um, cogs of this system, uh, but then also sort of what are the barriers that are preventing um, particularly non-government groups from becoming in, involved in policy and management, and then also what are some opportunities to better involve them. And then now I'm just finishing up a contract as well um, as a research assistant for some of the aerial survey work that I was just talking about, um, which is also through JCU and a partnership with the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority. 
Yeah. So for those of you guys who don't know, James Cook University, JCU is one of mm. the, kind of the biggest marine, um, marine focused universities in Australia. And it was actually one of the first universities I looked at when I was coming to Australia to study because oh, cool. I, I originally wanted to do some marine science too, but then I, I thought physics might give me better work opportunities. Ah, uh, yeah. Joke's on me, because now I work in ocean conservation. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Physical oceanography, I think, is a very underrated skill, so. Yeah, well, I can, I can do maths. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's good. Um, cool. So what, what did you kind of find out about um, the industry stakeholders and everything like that? Because as someone who's lived in Queensland for seven years, it's kind of fascinating because the general public or, you know, just people day to day, we don't know anything about what's happening in terms of the management of the marine species. And we kind of take a lot of the things for granted. So mm. sorry for that. My dog just, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> he just sighed in his sleep. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so we, we're not really aware of what's going on in, in our ocean. So what are some of the management techniques happening and what are, these organizations doing? Yep, so um, that actually what you just said is that about um, not really being aware of what's what's out there and what's going on is actually something that was a major barrier that was identified by a bunch uh, of different groups of people. Um, and so basically what I found, so I reviewed um, the environmental policy and management plans that were protecting uh, marine turtles, dugongs, humpback whales, and non-threatened species of migratory shorebirds on the east coast of Australia. Um, I also, as I said before, investigated the roles of different groups of stakeholders um, in the governance of threats to marine migratory species. And so when I say governance, it's a very broad concept, but I'm discussing it in terms of the context of policy and management and implementing that, designing and implementing that policy and management, but then also engaging different groups of um, stakeholders and basically so Australia has um, lots of different measures in place to protect the marine environment not just marine migratory species so for instance um, Australia is a signatory party to lots of international agreements um, like the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the Convention on the Conservation of Migratory Species, um, there's several different migratory bird agreements um, and the marine environment from three nautical miles offshore to 200 nautical miles offshore is considered to be the Commonwealth Marine Area and it's a matter of national environmental significance. So there's, um, there are policy and management plans in place, but the biggest thing that I found um, is that on the east coast of Australia, even though, so we've got this big overarching um, protection from the national level of government, um, and there's also little, um, not little, there's also policy and management tools in place at the state level, but there's no connection really or harmonization between these different levels of governance. And so a turtle that is uh, swimming around in Queensland waters might migrate across the border south to New South Wales, in which case it'll be exposed to a totally different set of rules protecting it. And oftentimes people don't know or understand what those, those rules are. Um, and so the, that means that even though they, they are well protected, these species are well protected in, in their pockets, once they migrate across those lines, 
um, it's not, they're not, they may not be as well protected as they, as they could be. And so they said, we see the same thing for threatened species in Australia. And what's happening now is the federal government is um, working with the states to introduce the common assessment method for listing threatened species um, throughout their entire range at the highest level of threat. And this is going to coincide with the listings under the International Union for the Conservation of Nature red list. And so the red list is pretty easy to find online. If you just Google IUCN red list, um, and there may, lots of people listening might be familiar with that because it is an international tool. Um, and Australia's threatened species listings now are based on the red list, but this, this common assessment method for threatened species is aiming to sort of reduce those um, redundancies or the overlapping or the conflicts and make everything so that it's um, sort of one listing for species and make protecting these species a bit more harmonized. And I think that would be um, important to do for marine migratory species in a way as well, if there's a way that we can sort of harmonize the listing or harmonize the legislation that's protecting these species as they move throughout the range, because what good is it to protect a species in your own state if it's just gonna go across to another state and then not be subjected to the same uh, legal protection. And so Australia is a pretty good, um, has pretty strong environmental regulations, but there also is a lot of room for improvement um, here that we can then translate out to other large um, marine jurisdictions. Definitely. So you're, you're talking about uh, protection of these species, but what does mm -hmm. protection actually entail or what does it mean? Yeah. So Australia has a federal national environmental legislation called the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. And um, under that act, there are seven, I think it's seven, matters of national environmental significance. And some of the species that I looked at um, fit within those criteria. So migratory species um, make, if a species is migratory, that species is considered to be a matter of national environmental significance, which means that for developers, um, for instance, if an industry body wanted to um, expand a harbor or dredge, and they knew that there were sea turtles and dugongs that were in that area, because those species are listed migratory species nationally, they're matters of national environmental significance, which means that the um, industry body has to refer their action, so the dredging, they have to refer it to the federal government to review. Um, and the federal government has to review that action and say, yes, you can go ahead, no, you can't go ahead, or yes, you can go ahead, but you need to do um, X, Y, and Z. So for instance, you might have to use certain types of lighting for sea turtles, or you might have to stop dredging activities if you see X amount of whales in the area during whale season. Um, you might have to do something else for another species. Um, so, it, so the listing under federal legislation adds a sort of layer of, um, I guess, protection or activities that need to be done before development or industrial activities can occur. There's also um, state legislation that lists species as threatened. So there is no listing 
of migratory species at state levels, um, but there are a listing of threatened species and other sort of um, state uh, matters of environmental significance as well, different categories. And then there's also, also tools um, like recovery plans. So the so marine turtles have a recovery plan. And the recovery plan um, is designed, was designed by um, the federal government and the Queensland and New South Wales government. And it's designed to outline um, all of the research that is currently existing to, that um, describes the status of turtles in Australia. Uh, also outlines uh, key threats to um, sea turtles in Australia. And also outlines um, management actions. And so what's interesting about the recovery plan is that it's um, one of Australia's largest recovery plans that's ever been developed. But I spoke to quite a few people who um, are sort of the target, so some community groups and some local governments and representatives and, and um, researchers who say that it's, a, it's an amazing document it's very robust and it's spent they put a lot of time and money and effort into putting it together but there are groups that do not know what they are supposed to do with this recovery mm -hmm. plan so they get this plan they read it they read it again they read it again maybe read it for a fourth time <laughs> and say i think i think i know what i'm supposed to do but it's not easily accessible to mm -hmm. them and um, and so that I think um, is a major issue for a lot of different stakeholder groups. There also are other more condensed versions that are designed to do similar things to recovery plans, but aren't as, um, I guess, as robust. So in terms of like the actual actions uh, outlined in these recovery plans, mm -hmm. it's very clear, like you do A, B, C to protect species this, or is it, is it kind of general? Because I feel like a lot of these documents are written to, you know, appease the, the, the meetings and the boardrooms while I don't know how well they tr transform, like transfer to actually being out there in the ocean on a day-to-day, -day, like, and these creatures actually living and needing that protection mm. from uh, pollution or like, as you said, harbor expansions. Uh, boats like I think pollution is one of the biggest ones like the runoffs mm. off of um, the coast of Queensland whether it's like the farming or the rivers or directly I just found out that like a lot of power plants just pump their waste straight mm. with like relatively minimal um, you know <laughs> wasting of the waste yeah. like they're just like oh yeah it's kind of in the zone um, so yeah how does it translate to like actually what's happening out there yeah, so um, a lot of the actions that are um, written are generic and ambiguous. And so it leaves a lot of room for interpretation of um, people who are, who are designed to, or who are meant to be implementing these actions. It's sort of, okay, well, we have this general objective. So for instance, I think there's one that says, um, reduce sea turtle mortality um, due to, uh, I don't know if it's boat strikes or if it's plastic pollution, but let's just say it's for plastic pollution. Mm -hmm. uh, but it give you, so it just says reduce sea turtle mortality 
due to plastic ingestion or plastic pollution. Um, and that's the action or that's the, that's the goal. But then how, how, what is, what does it mean to reduce? Does it mean stop one turtle from dying from ingesting um, turtles is it, uh, from ingesting plastic? Does it mean uh, stop 5% of the turtle population that's now dying? So it is very um, generic. And that again is something that um, quite a few people said to me is that they, that they don't know exactly what they're meant to be doing. And so something that I think would be beneficial is having a, a document or a management plan that's like this, but having a cover letter. So obviously these management plans all have executive summaries and any government report you're gonna read has an executive summary that gives you a very short and sweet version of what the plan is about. But having a cover letter or a document that is very short that outlines specifically what needs to be done and who should be or can do it, I think would um, really change the way that these management plans are implemented. And I think it would lead to better and greater involvement from non-government groups because then they would actually be able to see what it is that they're supposed to be doing and figure out how, they'll know then how that they can be putting these actions into place. What do you think are the biggest like issues that are facing the marine life and these migratory species on the east coast of Australia? Climate change and obviously is a massive mm -hmm. issue. Um, and I think um, I think really the root of it is so it comes down and I didn't I was reading when I was reading this question, I was trying to think of a poignant answer to it. <laughs> <laughs> I think the um, the biggest challenge is actually educating people and providing the tools and the motivation for people to become involved in conservation. So ultimately, when you look at it, people are the root of all the major issues that are negatively impacting the ocean, climate change, pollution, overfishing, etc. Um, I think the root of it is providing education and the tools to understand the science and the management and everything, because I think in I think people innately value nature, um, but I think that often it's not necessarily accessible in yeah. terms of maybe the language that scientists are using or um, the way that science is being interpreted and they're consuming it through the media, um, as well as certain alternative livelihoods. Um, and I think that scientists can do all this great science, but in the end, it actually sort of means very little if the general populations of non-scientists don't understand it, don't know how to implement it. So while I think people are the biggest challenge facing the ocean, I also see them as the greatest asset to conservation. Definitely. And so I think providing education and tools will then sort of help promote the longevity and sustainable populations of these migratory species as they're migrating throughout Australia. And then uh, these, lots of these species also leave Australia. And so if Australia, Australia does a good job of um, taking care of their species, but then improving on what we already do and then educating our partners in conservation, I think would be beneficial to um, protecting these migratory species. Definitely. Uh, I, I'm also a big believer that education is kind of the way forward. And 
that's, mm-hmm. I guess, what I'm trying to do with this podcast as well as talking to these experts who have spent years, you know, in the fields doing the research um, out there who, you know, have that firsthand experience and kind of translating the complicated scientific papers into something a bit more easily accessible to the general public. <laughs> because, yeah, I, as you said, I think there's quite a big disconnect between scientific research and then what actually gets out into the world. Like I was just talking mm. to someone uh, on a recent episode of the Ocean Pancake podcast uh, where she was like, it's it's crazy to me because we've known about the microplastics and the plastic pollution for at least 10, 15 years. Like the scientific mm. community, the marine biologists have been very much aware of this. These studies were done years and years ago and only now is it being picked up by the media the last two years and are people actually acting on it so i think we need to shorten um that time between the studies and then the solutions taking hold because as you said there's a lot of problems happening right now and we need to act (laughs) to help protect the oceans (laughs) yeah yeah and i think um i think making it so that your message um is meeting your target audience and making it relevant. So um, I struggled with this when I was trying to get um, different people to talk to me. So for instance, I really was on like the fishing industry is really underrepresented in my um, interviews and my data because I really struggled um, to sort of help the fisher, the fishing industry see why it was worth their while to participate in my Mm -hmm. research. I ended up getting a few people in the fishing industry to talk to me, but I really had to push this message and say, look, I know that you might not interact with a whale or a sea turtle on a daily basis, but when you do interact with these whales, they, or these turtles, they have, um, their presence are being caught as bycatch has the, runs the risk and often shuts down your entire shipping vessel. And so then you're now losing out on money and product and, and you're losing out on your time and, and all that sort of stuff. And so you have to present, I think, your message in a way that's, um, that matters and is relevant to, to your target audience. Like it's very easy to convince um, a bunch of marine scientists or environmental scientists why they should care and participate, but it might be harder to convince um, your grandpa who doesn't think that yeah. using whatever, using um, four plastic straws a day is, I mean, it's, 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 I think it can be really hard depending on who your audience is. Um, so I think you really have to tailor your message to, to meet your audience. And I think that, um, as you said, scientists are, um, and my research showed this as well, is that scientists are in a prime position to sort of link different groups. Um, and translate science across different thresholds. So scientists, I think, have the unique ability um, or have the unique opportunity to not only translate science so that it's used in policy and management decisions, but also translate science um, so that it's used appropriately in media and um, communicated to the wider general population of non-scientists. I spoke to someone quite recently on the Ocean Pancake podcast who discussed uh, the traditional like knowledge of Australia and mm-hmm. their 
the, the practices that the indigenous population here were using before, you know, modernization and everything to make sure species weren't overfished. So do you see any sort of like connections of the traditional knowledge with the science and what's happening in terms of um, managing these species up and down the coast? So um, again, traditional owners were underrepresented in my, um, I have some insight, but they were also underrepresented in my data because um, it, it's very hard. So I didn't have existing connections to traditional owner groups through my supervisors. And it takes a long time to form yeah. trusting relationships with all stakeholders. Um, but that, that um, I think traditional knowledge is beginning to be incorporated into policy and management more and more. So for an example, um, in the Great Barrier Reef on the East Coast of Australia are the traditional use of marine resource agreements. And so in North Queensland, there are traditional owner groups along the East Coast and um, in Northern Australia, up near the Torres Strait as well, that uh, form an agreement with the Queensland government and the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority. Um, outlining sort of how these traditional owners are going to um, use or are going to traditionally use the marine resources. And so what I mean by that is that marine turtles and dugongs are um, obviously protected nationally uh, and within the state of Queensland in Australia, but they also are um, cultural keystone species to traditional owner groups in Northern Australia. And so what that means is they're protected under the Native Title Act and the, um, that traditional owner groups have the rights to hunt um, and use sea turtles and dugongs for customary purposes. And so there are some groups in Northern Australia who have formed these traditional use of marine resource agreements um, with the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority and they, some of these tamras um, use, introduce a complete moratorium on hunting turtles and dugongs so they don't do it at all. Yeah. Some groups um, might have a moratorium on dugongs but not turtles um, and others might have a quota that they set, they say okay we're only going to take um, these number of dugongs a year or these number of turtles a year and sort of manage the um, sea turtle and dugong populations themselves. And some traditional owner groups through native title have sole ownership over um, nesting beaches or mm -hmm. coastal waters to a certain extent. Um, and so then they manage the, all the marine species that live in that area. But I think that um, the incorporating of traditional knowledge um, into science and policy um, has a long way to go, I still think. And so um, I know that it's often hard to engage traditional owners with um, policy and management decisions because the, um, these groups are so widespread, but then also um, it often turns out that the same elders are being consulted over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah both science and for management. And so then there's, there's some, some consultation fatigue that comes out there. Yeah. Um, so I think we have a long way to go because it's traditional knowledge is incredibly important. Um, and there's still a lot of 
talking about you without you that goes on in terms of traditional um, knowledge. And so um, I think there's a long way to go with that, but it does exist to some extent, at least in Northern Australia through the, the traditional use of marine resource agreements. Um, but I think it needs to be, traditional knowledge needs to be better incorporated into both science and policy and management. Yeah. Uh, I can imagine there's some some disconnect kind of in the area, but it's it's good to know that we are moving in the right direction because it's it's fascinating how you know their knowledge was passed down just through stories and just recently mm. some of the scientific discoveries. Yeah, I guess reinforcing the stories and showing that what their stories were saying actually happened, like with the movement of the water to the Great Barrier mm. Um, it's a very interesting story about, um, I think it's the golden fish. I don't want to, I don't want to tell it wrong, but, uh, basically it was, uh, that some Aboriginal communities far north in Queensland, someone there fished a fish that they weren't meant to fish. And then the, uh, you know, the deity of the sea got angry and swallowed up their land. And recently marine science found out that, um, it was the case and that, the original coastline of Australia several thousand years ago, I'm not sure exactly when, was where the Great Barrier Reef was, and that uh, mm -hmm. the water did swallow up the land at a crazy rate. I think it was like 100 meters a year or something, or a couple of years, so that the, the communities who lived up there did see that retreating of their, um, of their homes within their lifetime, so that's why they believe that you know, they had angered the, the sea, sea gods and all that. So it was just really interesting because then, yeah, science actually was like, oh, that's, that did happen. And it was a story that was told for many, many years already. And it would be cool to find out what kind of other knowledge they, they have that, you know, science is yet to discover. Um, yeah, and I think it's um, traditional knowledge is is translated in a way that's much different than Western scientific knowledge. And I think that that is something that I think policymakers and um, scientists are something that struggle with. So kind of to wrap up this, this podcast, I want to ask you the question that I ask all my guests, which is if yep. you could kind of recommend one thing or one piece of advice to the general public who are interested in protecting our oceans, um, what, what would that be? Or what is kind of the takeaway message? Yeah, so I think, um, I think what I would just say is that if you find something that you are interested in, just go for it, just go after it and learn about it. Because I think that oftentimes science um, can be intimidating mm -hmm. and um, that people sort of feel like, oh, I don't want to take that first step into, um, into getting involved. Um, and so they just sort of, they shy back or shy away from it. Yeah. And I think that we're all just sort of, I mean, we're all just sort of learning and doing our best as we're going and, I, and going through. And I think just jumping in and getting involved with whatever interests you, whether it's, um, a campaign against single-use plastics, or um, you want to learn more about policy, you can uh, maybe write to your local minister or representative um, and see if there's a way you can, can become involved there. I think just taking a step 
in the in the direction of um, ocean conservation and just really putting yourself out there and getting involved is is the best way that um, you can support the oceans and promote ocean conservation because I think then once you start getting out there and living your passion um, other people sort of catch on and yeah. see it and then they become interested and then you sort of have this snowball effect of um, new ocean conservation warriors and uh, so I think just getting out there and just doing it is really um, what what you need to do if you want to help our oceans yeah so just get out there get involved there's so many cool things you can do especially if you do live yeah. in Australia we have so many incredible mm. activities. but even in other places around the world there's so much you can do and if there isn't anything in your local area you can start it that's the cool thing with the power of yeah why not make an event in your local area start a cleanup um now that facebook just allows you to kind of share events you can see who rocks up otherwise just go for a walk and pick up some trash you'll feel better you're helping our ocean um basically any piece of i don't know the whole trash issue is a whole separate thing of yeah. what we're meant to do with it anyway we'll get into that in another episode <laughs> yeah and you don't have to live by the ocean to help the ocean either so one thing that I think was really important um that I learned when I was starting out my marine science career at least in the context of the U.S. but no matter where you are in the U.S. somehow or another every river every lake every waterway leads to the ocean and so you might, I might have been in a parking lot in Chicago in Target with yeah. trash around, but it'll, if it makes it into the lakes, then it can make it out um, through the lake system and then out into the ocean. So you don't have to live on the coast or live um, near the ocean to actually help the ocean. The thing that you do has an impact on your environment and somehow in some way impacts the ocean. Very, very well put. Once again, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us here today. Um, thank you for having me. Of course. And um, where where should people find more about you or the work you're doing if people want to? Yeah, so I um, have a pretty active Twitter and you can find me at, at Rachel Miller ST. So R-A-C-H-E-L-M-I-L-L-E-R, S as in Steve, T as in Tom. Tyler. Um, you can find me there. I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, and that's probably the easiest place to find me. I'm also on uh, LinkedIn. Um, and I do have a sort of research page, but it's not updated as frequently as it could be. So Twitter is probably the best way to keep up with me. Sounds good. And of course, we'll have all these links and all the things that uh, Rachel has mentioned on the Ocean Pancake website. So make sure to head over there and check it out. And yeah, if you have any questions, feel free to tweet at Rachel. I don't really tweet that much, uh, but I hear it's a great way to <laughs> get in touch. And yeah, I only got into it because somebody told me that I needed to get into it and do some SciComm on Twitter. And so I got into it four or five years ago. And uh, I'm not a super SciCommer, but um, I do am pretty active on Twitter and um, like to share science, not just related to my science, other science, but then also just sort of every day. I think sometimes you'll see pictures of my dogs because they were important mental health when I was finishing my PhD. So. Congratulations again for finishing. Thank you. It's very, very impressive. So um, thank you. Again, thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me.
Once again, thank you so much, Rachel, for joining us today. It was enlightening to learn about what's going on on the east coast of Australia and management techniques. I got a little bit lost in some of the policy work, but it's good to know that that is one of the biggest issues we are facing, and that's really that science communication of what's happening in the scientific community to help translate it to better policies and therefore better protection for our oceans creatures. If you want to get involved, make sure to just start reading about the topics you're interested in, or of course, keep listening to this podcast. If you want to help support me, you can become a patron on Patreon, uh, or yeah, just say hi, share this, any of that stuff. Thank you guys so much, and I'll see you in next week's episode.